up, mamas? It's Tanika Ray. I was a television host for 20 years before my entire life blew up when I had a baby. Shifting gears from red carpets to a gig called Mom required a whole new game plan. The carefree, globe-trotting boss babe me was suddenly in search of a mommy tribe to help me navigate the inevitable fumbles and fails of raising a kid. Mama Stay with Tanika Ray is a sanctuary for the mommy collective, where we amplify our self-love and self-care, trade tips on raising conscious kids, help each other fine-tune our boundaries, and celebrate the highs while forgiving ourselves for the lows in the wild, 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 wild world of mommying AF. Imani Bashir. Hello, hello. Welcome to Mama Stay. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm so excited for this. Well, I'm excited too because you're part of my clubhouse experience that happened, what, a year ago. It was a real powerful infusion of look how beautiful the world is for me. And I didn't know I was really trapped in this American ideology. And oh my God, there's no place else in the world that we can go. Every place is worse than this place. Take us to the moment when you, a couple years ago, what, eight years ago now, where you decided to pack up your stuff and bounce. The interesting thing about it was like, I felt like I was at an ascension in my career. So I was in broadcasting, specifically like sports broadcasting. But I was doing like the gritty, like grind of like not getting paid, still having like two part time jobs on the side, was living on food stamps, still trying to figure it out. And I just felt like at the stage that I was in my career, I felt like I was like in the ascension of my career of going from like an independent broadcast network to really like starting to like interview for like bigger networks. But in the process, I still had like two part-time jobs. I was living on food stamps. I had to transition from living on my own to moving into my parents' basement. And it just was a lot of self-reflection on like the personal goals that I had for myself and also society's ideas of, you know, where you should be and, and all of those kinds of things. And I was just really still during that summer. And literally August will be seven years. I left in August of 2015. And I was very still in that that summer. And I remember praying like so much. And I remember just asking specifically for guidance, like just guide me, like guide me in, you know, where it is that I needed to be. That spirit, God, universe, everything in me was like, you should move abroad. You should move abroad. And, And from that like moment of feeling, I just started doing more research about it and like looking into like, okay, what, what does this look like? What could this look like for me? Okay. Did you know anybody that moved abroad prior? Had you seen a movie about moving abroad? Or did that just nugget pop in your head and you're like, sure. Right. So my paternal grandfather actually had moved to Cairo, Egypt, and he had been living there and his wife, they had been living there for some years because his wife used to work for the Board of Education of New Jersey. She was an educator and she started bringing kids from the inner city in New Jersey of overseas for, you know, exchange, like a cultural exchange program to to show them, you know, kind of what life was like there. And when 9-11 happened, the parents were like, please keep the kids there. Like we will pay whatever money 
that's necessary, but don't bring them back here. Like things are really, are really bad, especially with the majority of the children that she had being Muslim children. So they were my only example that I had of people that I knew that actually like chose to live abroad. But ultimately it wasn't even, it wasn't even them or like their example of doing it that was like, I need to do this. It was really like, my brother had gotten married to my sister-in-law. My sister-in-law is Somali, but she's British. So she's from London. Going to London and just seeing how they lived and like seeing how amazingly fabulous that they were and like how like the Muslim women could just be and exist and nobody like better than I. It was just like a lot of things that just opened up in that time that I was like, wow, <laughs> like life is amazing and it's multicultural and it's beautiful and life can be that thing outside of home. Like it doesn't necessarily have to be that thing where you are. And that was the moment for me that really was like, hmm, I like this. I like how I feel here. I like how I feel in this moment. And that is what pushed me even more to like seek what that journey was going to look like. It's amazing because as an African-American, we don't get those moments very often. And it's funny because I, I went to an HBCU. I'm a Spelman grad. And when we have those three days once a year to go back to homecoming is really all that we get where we don't feel othered. And we talk about it all the time. Why do we all flock back to homecoming? Because we feel safe there. We feel loved there. We feel we're all like in this beautiful sphere of sameness and equity and love. There's no othering at all. And we have a morsel of it. And so you went to seek it out for life, which who knew? We get so fed the bad PR. And as a Muslim woman, you're always going to be othered in this country where they have othered Muslim people from the jump. They othered us also, but we have pockets, right? So tell me, have you always been Muslim or did you convert? Were you raised? Born and raised Muslim, multiple generations, you know, and people forget that the history of Muslims and Islam in America is as old as the 1500s. And Black Muslims have been here for a very long time. Like if you go to the African-American History Museum in Washington, D.C., you will see examples from enslaved people who wrote Quranic passages, who had their prayer beads. So I asked my dad to collaborate on an article with me to write about the fasting in America and how it was a radical act for enslaved people. So that was a way for them to actually keep their Islam with them. And so they would actually give their food to other enslaved people as a form of resistance, but also as a form of them to keep their faith. And so, you know, for me, it's like my whole lifetime, people have treated it like, when did y'all get here? And it's like, we've been here, like generationally, we have been here. But you never feel at home because people are like, but you're Black. Do you know what your name means? But you're Black. How did you get the name? But you're wearing hijab. I don't understand it. And it's like constantly feeling like you have to teach someone who you are just by existing. Well, that's so fascinating because we've been told per movies like The Roots that our names were taken, our identities were taken, our religion was taken. How did the Muslim enslaved people 
How did they hold on to it, knowing that their children were being stolen and their wives were being beaten and they were being split apart? How did that happen? And how did they how did they hold on to it when I guess the other people were they weren't Christian? What were all the enslaved people? I have so many questions. Obviously, we have core African cultural religions and things that have existed. And we're just learning more of those now as, you know, Africanness has become more acceptable in mainstream, right? So we're learning more about what those cultural customs of Yoruba or, you know, Igbo. So it was all about the Orishas back. Absolutely. Okay. But in, in terms of Islam, Islam has also been in Africa And I would say, like, from what it is that I've researched, and obviously the numbers can change and fluctuate, but somewhere in the neighborhood of like 80% of enslaved Africans were Muslim-identifying people who had Muslim-identifying names and things of that nature. So, you know, examples that we see of that is where they were forced to, like, write biblical passages. They would write them in Arabic, and obviously we will find out through research and all of these things that they were writing Quranic passages and they were writing prayers and they were writing different things and they would still pray because specifically Islam is under Arabic. So Arabic as a widely spoken language in terms of Islam is how you read your holy book and how you, in our specific faith, we memorize that holy book from cover to cover. And so for those who go through the schooling and go through the traditions, those things stay within you just like a song, just like your favorite song. No matter how long it is that you've been away from it, as soon as you hear that beat, you know exactly all of the inflections, all of the 808s, all of whatever it is in the background, you're going to remember it like the first day. And so I feel like for them, that's what it was. It was a way of, of keeping them spiritually tapped into themselves and not to lose themselves too much question. Did that separate? And there's no way for you to really know this, but I'm just curious because I don't, I look, I'm, I came through the American school system. So did that separate the Muslim enslaved Africans from the other enslaved Africans, or did they still work together? Do they still see each other as brothers and sisters? Yeah, obviously, you know, for what it is that I know and I researched and, and learned from family and things of that nature, It was one of those things where it was still a communal experience because during the times that the Muslim enslaved were fasting, they were giving their food to others. They were handing their, you know, whatever it is that they could to others. And, you know, a big part of this faith is charity. And they would find, they would find different forms and ways to give charity to other people. And I think ultimately it just really brought them together. Like, okay, you have to, you know, naturally we have to do what we have to do for survival. We can never berate or think like, oh my God, how could enslaved just like lose their culture, their names? Like they had to survive. If I'm going to be John and that means I'm going to live another day, I'm going to be John. Right. And then there are others that are like, you know what, I'm going to be John but I'm going to still try try my best to hold on to what it is that I can remember, what it is that nourishes my soul, what it is that, you know, reminds me of home. You know what I'm saying? And so there's different levels of it, but I feel like all of it had to have brought them together and reminded them that no matter what, we're in the thick of this thing together as a community. 
seven years ago, 2015. So I moved to Cairo and it just so happened that five prior to me making the decision to move, I got a chance to just go like on a visit and I got to go there. And I remember like going to the pyramids for the first time and just having like this really majestic, magical like experience there. So being able to like go to the pyramids, see them up close and personal, but then also think of the people who have been there, the people who have like, you know, you see that picture of Louis Armstrong and you're like, Louis Armstrong stood right here. And then as someone who considers themselves a wordsmith and I've been a journalist, Maya Angelou actually lived in Cairo. She was actually an editor at a newspaper in Cairo. So thinking like, I wonder what street she walked. I wonder where did she go? And like really just connecting in that way. So when it came down to like, where could I go or, or where would I consider? One, I just thought of like opportunity. Someone presented an opportunity. They were like, hey, you can come here and teach. It's pretty easy. It's pretty decent money. You know what I mean? For the cost of living here. And then two, I was like, even though I didn't necessarily have like a full, like growing up relationship with my grandfather and that, I felt like at least I have someone with the same name in close proximity in the event I'm in the thick of it or something happens. There's somebody who's been here over time that has community where I don't, that can help out if need be. And so when it came down to those two experiences and those two ideas, I was like, that's where I'm going. And I bought a one-way ticket and ain't been back since. (laughs) And so your grandfather was still living there when you moved? Yeah, he actually passed there. So, you know, years later, you know, he passed there. That is his final resting place. That was his home. He built a home from the ground up there and he created a life and community there. I mean, that's the way to do it when you have, I think for a lot of Americans, we don't have any family on any other continent that we know of, which makes it a little trickier, which is going to come down to people like you. And I see a lot of expats who are going to have to be our guides who are going to have to be, all right, we came, we went, we staked it out, come to Ghana. We got this, you know, and, and we're going to have to really lean on that and lean on you. And you decided you went to Cairo. And then I know that you've gone to many different places, many different countries. So give us the the map of where the journey of that you took that led you to Mexico. Seven months into my move to Cairo, I actually met my husband So my husband is from um, Buffalo, New York. And at the time he was coaching football, our style of football, American football at the American University of Cairo. So we met at this NFL event, like weirdly enough, the NFL was out there because they had a program back then called Football Without Barriers or something like that, where they would teach people overseas the game of American style football. And I was like, I just wanted to touch a home. I found out about it and I was like, I'm going. My husband at the time, he was there and, you know, we met and he told me, you know, he had been living abroad since 2013 and he had lived in Spain and Italy and France and all these places. And I was like, you know, you know, he was explaining like his career. And I was like, wow, that's dope. Like you just get to live like all over the world and do something that you really enjoy, that you really love. And and I admired that. And, you know, once we decided to get married, it just became the trajectory of, you know, continuing in the path of his career. And so from Egypt, we went to China. We did a six, six week, six city tour in China. And then we spent like an entire month in Thailand as like celebratory, just sitting on a beach, eating mangoes, getting $5 massages. 
Right. I was going to say for all of $30, the whole trip. (laughs) Like we were living the life. Okay. We decided to come home for a little bit because he was in between like contracts. And then we were trying to figure out where we we were going to go next. But then in the process, I became pregnant with our son, Nasir. As someone who never wanted to give birth in the United States, in a hospital, any of those things, it came down to making a decision of like where would potentially be the best place for me where I would feel safe, like safe enough to actually give birth. We went to Poland. So my son was born in a city called Szczecin, which is is to the like Northwest. It's much closer to Germany than it is the rest of Poland. We had a beautiful birthing experience. Then we went back to China. We went to two different cities in China. And the last city that we lived in was actually Wuhan, which is the pretty much the city where COVID-19, you know, was. So after Poland, we went to a city called Chongqing in China. And then we decided, you know what? The city wasn't necessarily for us. It's a beautiful city, but my husband knew another American that was living in Wuhan and was like, hey, it's beautiful here. It's family friendly. You should come here. We got a job waiting for you. So we were like, okay, cool. We were literally just approaching our two year mark when COVID hit in Wuhan and we ended up stuck outside in Malaysia trying to figure out what was next. Okay. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So your husband's gig is teaching American football to international folk right? To people around the world. So you guys are about to move to Wuhan. When COVID hit? We were already there. We were approaching like two years of living there. So mind you, we're living in this city. No one ever heard of. Everybody's like, where are y'all? We're like, Wuhan. It's a cosmopolitan, beautiful city. It's bigger than New York City. You know, we lived in a 27 floor high rise apartment, marble floors. Like it's, it's a gorgeous city. And it's super family-friendly, absolutely wonderful experience, but nobody had ever heard of it until COVID hit. <laughs> so, so everybody was like, wait, y'all lived where? <laughs> like, So literally when we left Wuhan, we were in the process of going on vacation because Chinese New Year is the biggest holiday there. And that's something that you pre-book because... You know, when we first got to China, we didn't know that. And so we ended up stuck in China during Chinese New Year while everybody was like in Thailand and the Philippines and Bali. And first of all, never knew Wuhan was cosmopolitan. We thought I thought Wuhan was kind of desolate. And then there was a factory where this experiment happened. I mean, who knew? It's like city high rise buildings. When I say mega malls, I'm talking about eight floors worth of malls, five floors worth of malls. Like, like, no, it it wasn't desolate at all. Like the population of people that live there was, this is why, you know, I try my best to, to show people via social media. Like, this is what this city looks like. It's, it was a booming city. And there's a bunch of universities there as well. So there's a lot of international students that come from different areas of the world. Like my husband was coaching guys that were from the Caribbean, people that were from Africa, some of what our nanny at the time, she was from Zimbabwe, but she was going to school. So we hired her, you know what I mean? To, to watch our son sometimes. So yeah, it, it's, oh my goodness. It's one of the, the most amazing cities I've been to. It's absolutely beautiful. What? 
We, you know, we, we, this is why I turned my cable off. Like I, I, the American news just does not give us the whole deal. We've got to get down. What do you watch? The BBC? I don't watch news at all. I'm not interested in the narratives, but the BBC I hear is probably the best. What do you watch? So I don't say tapped in with news in that way. For me, it's more so like social media because I feel like people give it more honest that way. And in addition, I also stay tapped into expat, my expat networks of people who live in different places around the world to be able to say, oh, hey, this is what it is versus this is what it's not. I've had so many situations, especially when I was living in Egypt. I remember one time a girlfriend like calling me in the middle of the night and she calls me on Facebook and she's like, Imani, are you okay?" And I'm like, what are you talking about? And she was like, girl, they're talking about there was just a terrorist attack or whatever. I was like, girl, I'm in the bed. Like, ain't nothing happened here. Like, there's nothing going on here. Like, even to the point where the next day I'm asking my grandfather, I'm like, maybe there's something I didn't see. There was absolutely nothing that happened. So I was just like, girl, I don't know what you're talking about. We're all safe here. Like, there's there's nothing going on. Girl, the games they play, the games they play, the trickery. Ooh, I, I am peeping game. So. In that, now that we're in this shit storm, as an expat, first of all, you're so happy you're not here. What are the what are the greatest reasons why you're so happy you're not in America? Oh, the quality of life just changed for me. One of the one of the strongest catalysts for me feeling like I needed to leave was when Sandra Bland was murdered. And during the time when I learned more about her, she and I were the same age at the time. She and I were doing the exact same thing. She was chasing after her passion. She was going after her career. She was going after the thing that she really wanted to do and follow her purpose. And it would never leave me. She, Her face would never leave me. Her story would never leave me. And I felt one with her. Like I could be her at any minute. And I just remember thinking to myself, I don't want to feel like this. I just don't want to feel like this anymore. And living abroad has really showed me that I don't have to feel like that anymore. I don't have to feel like somebody is after me. I don't have to feel like I'm constantly like under attack or that, you know, how I show up in the world. Because I wear hijab everywhere I go. You know what I mean? Lie too. (laughs) Thank you. And I don't, I don't feel, and I didn't feel fear in that when I was in America, but it's just the point of the narratives that are placed about you. When I'm out in the world, I feel like I can be, I'm happy to be a teaching tool and a learning tool for other people to learn what it is to be a Black person, to know what it is to be Black American, to know what it is to be Black and Muslim, because people obviously, they get their own depictions on this side of the world of what it is to represent certain intersections and, you know, and ethnicities and things of that nature. So to be able to dispel like, no, we ain't like we, we not like that. Like, that's not what it is. You know, it feels good. It just feels good to feel comfortable to literally walk outside and not get followed. Like I literally was just in Florida with family and my aunt lived 10 minutes away from the store. So I was like, I'm going to walk. It's beautiful weather. I was followed and had to run and had to run to the parking lot. Because I'm like, I don't want to get sex trafficked. I don't want somebody, you know what I mean? Like I'm on the phone with my sister and I'm like, stay on the phone. And I'm like running for it in flip-flops, trying to get to the parking lot where I can be seen, where people can see me, all of those things. I don't want to live a life like that anymore. And living abroad has, now, I always say this, I say it on my social media, I've said it in my articles, it doesn't negate that things can happen anywhere. 
bad things can happen. Crime can happen because wherever there is poverty, there is crime. That's the reality. However, it's not that it's a constant cloud over you to think that, that like when my son goes to school, I have to really be prayerful that he's going to come home when he goes to school. You know, just things like that. It just my my quality of life enhanced the way I see the world enhanced the way I see myself has enhanced. And then as a result, I get to be a better mom because now I get to bring a better me to the table. That's not so anxiety filled, so depressed, so worried about the day to day and the bills and all of that. And and as a result, you see it in my son. I feel our babies feel our anxiety. Our babies replicate that anxiety in their behavior. I've noticed it with my daughter and it's been who I literally yesterday was talking to her father because I co-parent and I was like, we're going to have to do something about her anxiety. It's really intense. And she's starting to not want to go to camp or yesterday took her to the first day of camp this week. You're not supposed to be in here. And she literally with all of her little eight-year-old might shoved me out of the gym. I was like, babe, relax. I know this is a new experience. You're going to be okay. Like we don't need our babies are dealing with so much anxiety. Can't be another thing on top of that. So the fact that your son feels safe, the fact that you feel safe, now he feels safe is, especially for a black boy joy to expand. That's all it's about. That's all I care about. Let's get some more black boy joy in this world. Okay. Hello. Like that's one of the things that even descriptives. So like if you asked him, like, you know, like, what is this? He'll tell you he's got beautiful brown skin. He'll say, I got beautiful brown skin versus like, I'm black. Like even those identifiers like don't exist with him. And like he goes to an international school. Majority of the kids are Mexican. Obviously, we're in Mexico, but he's had a little brown boy also at the school. And he's like, oh, mommy, there's a beautiful brown boy at school. And then there's some, you know, brown kids that came from from Canada. They're Canadian. They're biracial, but they're they're brown just like him. He's like, oh, there's some beautiful brown kids in the neighborhood. And that's what he has like sitting with himself. Not that like he's at a deficit, that he's odd, that he's a a standout in a negative way, but that he's got melanin and the sun loves him. You know, and and that's what we we, we're teaching him. Oh, the sun loves you. That's why you got a little bit more than than most people that are walking around. Like you've got beautiful brown skin. The sun is God. And God kisses all of his babies. Like, that's what it is. I mean, the fact that our kids are so different from how we were. I mean, there was so much. The television, I think media, television shows, everything was about covertly making us shameful for our, our, our melanin. Whereas our babies have so many options on Netflix and Amazon Prime and all over the spectrum where they are just being fed self-love. So we are living in a beautiful time. Even though the world's on fire, there are so many beautiful things happening at the same time. Did you guys, okay, now that you've been, you've told me the map of where you've been, do you speak Chinese? So, no. Like, I was very basic. I'll give you a ni hao. I'll give you, like, you know, ordering my food, like telling you what it is that I want telling you like no no meat because a lot of times they're like meat equated to pork like in everything although there are a lot of restaurants there there's a lot of muslims in china 
So I know that was like a safe zone in terms of, I know my fried rice is not going to come with some ham, but no, I was not. And interestingly enough, my son was just starting to get his grasp of language there. And so he was speaking much more than me and my husband. I would have loved for him to actually learn that since, you know, Mandarin is like the number one widely spoken language in the world. But no, I have the most basic understanding of Mandarin that you can, yeah, that you can get. But, you know, once you're there, when you're there, you know, you you use your translation tools and you use your context clues or whatever it is that you need to get the job done. And, and, and that worked. First of all, I already know your son's going to be an incredible human just by the fact that he's lived so many places. He's been one of three and he's had to navigate. And it's not the same sort of place as America where he feels scared, but he feels just a different person, different type in that community. What has he shared with you about being one of one or sometimes one of two? You know what? I don't I don't think he's at the point yet. And I find the beauty in this that he recognizes that he's so vastly different from the next person. Like, and I think that thankfully, you know, with his dad and myself instilling in him very early that his skin tone and his skin color doesn't make a deficit. It doesn't make him any lesser than to have the skin tone that he has. And we instilled that those types of things on him very early. He's a very confident kid. He's very sure about the things that he likes, about the things that he doesn't like. And I also find myself as a mom being very intentional with making sure that he's in spaces where he's comfortable and where he says he's not comfortable to pull him out. No, we we haven't had those conversations as of yet where he's approached us to say someone's called him a this or somebody's, you know, said this about him or whatever the case may be. He knows the language very well. He speaks, he's very fluent in Spanish. So being able to communicate to others, you know, and he's a child that gravitates towards people that want to gravitate towards him. So he's not the kid that like wants to be friends with the bully. He doesn't like bullies. He wants to play with the kids that want to play. He wants to play with the kids that want harmony. That just, you know, he, for the longest time, he wasn't like a roughhouse type of kid wrestling and all that stuff when the other, you know, like little boys are doing that. He was just like, yeah, I just want to get on the jungle gym. I just want to go down the slide. And so those are the things that we champion. We just want to continue to keep nourishing the direction in which he's naturally going into. But he's such a confident kid. Like he's such an absolutely confident kid. And I couldn't have asked for a better upbringing for him, for him to realize his own power of himself before learning the deficits that he may face in the future. I love that so much. And I keep thinking like how faded your journey was. I always wanted him to feel acknowledged in his feelings, validated in, you know, what it is that he was saying, very intentional about wording, not using words like lying, or, you know, just things that that put things in a negative connotation and, and really reframing languages. So a lot of that really just came from, you know, my upbringing of feeling like certain things are attached to you. Certain words become triggers in your mind because you hear them so much. You hear certain wordings and certain things attached to you to where you become an adult and it's still a trigger. And I just never wanted my son to feel like anything that I said to him stung versus nurtured or versus healed. We don't force them to shake hands. We don't force them to give hugs and kisses. We don't force them on people's laps. Literally, I ask him, 
You know, would you like to say hello? No, I don't want to say hello. Okay. You know, we give him agency over himself. For me, I'm thinking of of myself and how so many, so many decisions I would make. I would always constantly have my parents' ideas of what was right or what was wrong or what was necessary and what was not in my head versus like my own clear way of like doing. And moving abroad was probably my first decision that I made completely and holistically on my own without even asking for anyone's permission, looking for anybody's permission. I didn't tell people until I already purchased my ticket to leave. And so for me, I want him to exhibit that freedom, that intuitive nature that children are innately born with. I have always wanted to nurture that innate ability to be intuitive. So then that way, when he goes up in the world and he's in a a situation that he doesn't feel comfortable, he's not feeling like, well, this person is family, so this is okay. Or this person is a friend, so this is okay. I'm very open and very communicative with him, especially about his body, about his private areas, that people have to ask permission. Number one, adults are not allowed to see your body, whether at school or not. I don't care if you come with poop home in your underwear. That's fine. We'll clean the poop. But nobody's about to wipe your butt. At school, at the doctor, nothing. Nobody is allowed to see you in the bathroom. I ask him permission to enter the bathroom when he's in on the toilet. Like, is it okay for mommy to come inside? Do you need some help? Nope, you don't need any help. Okay, is it okay if mommy just stands outside? No, it's not okay. Okay, mommy will be over here then. And so those things, I know people will probably like, what? But when he becomes an adult, he'll be able to make decisions on his own. That's not like, I wonder if what my mom thinks about this. You grown. Why would I have to think anything about the next stage, you know, that you go through in life? So I always want to nurture that intuitive nature that we end up losing because we always have somebody else in our head telling us what's right or wrong or telling us what's the do's and what's the don'ts. And I want him to just follow the nature that is within him, unless it's something absolutely dangerous, then obviously we got to, we got to, we ain't putting no fingers in no sockets, right? We will have a better understanding as to why not and why that's a danger and et cetera. And I'll explain it to you versus saying, just don't do that. So that's it for me. So you're officially a conscious parent. It's this whole idea about, con- I mean, cause I've been very vocal about it. I'm obsessed with the idea of it only because it is so new. It is so foreign to how we were raised. I was always told I was wrong. I was always told I didn't know what I was talking about when I absolutely did. But it still affects me. I still go question myself. Oh, am I not doing the right thing? Even though my instincts say yes. So the same as you, and I honor you for that because that is exactly the way that we need to parent our children is to give them autonomy over their own thoughts and for them to be intricately connected to their instincts because instincts is the truth, right? And love that. Thanks for hanging out, Mama. I know how little time we have in our day to honor ourselves, and I'm just thrilled to be a part of it. Make sure you click like, rate, and subscribe. I'd love to hear what you think about today's show and what you want to hear going forward. Remember, mommying is a gift, and you're doing a kick-ass job. So, Rusa and Mama stay. Mama stay.